So that's what it shows. But if I wear this ring and then I go out and I uh, cheat on Molly with other women, or I go out and I uh, get drunk and I come home and I physically abuse her, well, uh, the ring really is kind of meaningless, isn't it? Uh, there's really no point to wearing the ring if that's how I'm going to conduct myself. So uh, the ring only has value uh, if my conduct matches the covenant that we made, that the, that the covenant represents by wearing the ring. My heart has to be consistent uh, with the external symbol. Well, the Jews had received two external things from God that neither, uh, nobody else, no other people ever received. They received law and they received circumcision. And those were gifts from God uh, to the Jews. And, and like uh, the wedding ring, uh, those two gifts showed that the Jews were set apart. Uh, they were special people to God. They got what no one else had. And, and they were priv privileged above all other people. And so uh, the purpose of the gift of the law and circumcision was not for the Jews to boast in them. There were other purposes to them, uh, but the Jews did actually boast in these two gifts that they had received, and they considered themselves privileged to the extent that they would be above God's judgment because they were set apart. They were God's privileged people. And so because of these two gifts, uh, they, they began to think that they were not going to experience God's wrath. Well, Paul showed them in this passage that God will judge them, uh, and he will judge them uh, because they had the law and they had circumcision, but they failed to obey the law. And so uh, just as a wedding band should imply that I am faithful to my wife, uh, these privileges that uh, the uh, Jews had received, their lives should have matched the privileges that they had received. They should have conducted themselves uh, on even a higher level, a greater standard uh, than anybody else because of the privileges they had. And when they didn't conduct themselves that way, well, then Paul said the law and circumcision are both meaningless. Now, our need today, your need and my need, uh, is to understand that any external work or any ritual that we perform or any work that we do to try to earn God's favor is meaningless unless it's accompanied by heart change, unless it's accompanied by faith. Uh, because if our hearts aren't right, then uh, these things that we do uh, can just be empty religion, empty rituals that have no meaning in themselves. Uh, we don't want uh, the things we do to become the religion that is the performance of empty rituals. And, and when it does, uh, religion can really be dangerous because we tend to rely on the, our religion, the, the rituals that we perform, uh, rather than relying on the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ uh, for the basis of our salvation. So it's not what we do uh, that proves that we are in right relationship with God. It's the condition of our hearts while we do the things that we do that prove that we are in right relationship with God. So let's take a second here to remember that Paul is writing to believing Jews and Gentiles in Rome. These are Christians, right? They are believers. And so Paul isn't aiming his criticism at them in this passage. But what he does show is to show them all how utterly lost they were before they received God's grace. Uh, and he showed them that, that they were condemned because of their behavior. And it's only by the grace of God that they were saved. Now, Paul wanted these believers to spread the good news of the gospel to these unbelievers, uh, Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And so they 
could use this letter that Paul wrote to show them all the ways that God convicted them of their sin. Uh, and he, could, he would show them that, that there is no one who is free from sin. And we saw that as we've progressed through these early chapters in, in the end of chapter 1. It was the uh, unbelieving Gentiles who were immoral idolaters doing all kinds of sin because they did not uh, recognize the revelation of God to themselves in nature. And then in the beginning of chapter 2 that we looked at last week, uh, he was aiming both at Gentiles and Jews who were self-righteous, thinking that because of their pious behavior, uh, they were better than the immoral idolaters that Paul was talking about uh, in chapter 1. But uh, Paul showed that because they were relying on themselves and their own righteousness, and yet were still guilty of the sins that the Gentiles committed, they were no better off. And now in this passage, it seems specifically at the Jews this time. He's talking to the Jews and the Jews only. Uh, and he's going to convict them of sin too. Because like all people, they had God's revelation in nature. And they had God's revelation in conscience. But in addition to that, they got the things that nobody else got. They got the law. And they got circumcision. And so those were greater advantages than anything that the Gentiles had. But the Jews' problem uh, was that they misunderstood what the purpose of their privileges were. They thought that their privileges saved them. But in fact, their privileges don't save them. They actually mean that they're going to be held uh, to a higher standard. They're more accountable uh, because of the knowledge that they have. So uh, God doesn't save the Jews because they are Jews, as Paul himself could testify, right? Uh, Paul himself was one of those self-righteous Jews who would rely on his performance and he would rely on circumcision, rely on the law, and say that he was saved. And that was until Paul met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And, and then Paul learned that salvation was not from being a Jew. It's not because you're a Jew that you're saved, uh, because Paul was the best Jew there ever was. And yet still, he stood condemned. And so God saves Jews just like he saves everyone else by faith that shows itself in obedience. That's how we're saved, by faith that shows itself by obedience. And in this passage, uh, Paul talked about these two privileges, the law first and then circumcision. So the Jews put a lot of confidence in the law and they put a lot, a lot of confidence in their circumcision. So we'll talk first about the Jews' confidence in the law. And there were a lot of advantages that came with having the law. And we'll tick them off after we read uh, these few verses, verses 17 to 20. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And then the sentence breaks off there. We'll continue the sentence in a bit. But these are where the advantages are listed. So before we dig into these advantages, let's just notice the use of this word, if. Uh, Paul isn't using the word if uh, as if to suggest that these things are not true. He's not trying to express any sense of uncertainty here. Uh, grammarians would call these first-class conditional statements, and what that means is that the, the uh, statement that is made is presumed to be true. So you could translate them, if you call yourself a Jew, 
and you do. Uh, if you approve the law and boast in God, and you do. Uh, so they're not meant to express uncertainty, but actually to, to express truth, the truth of the matter that is being asserted here. So uh, it's not meant to express any uncertainty at all. He was not being sarcastic. He was talking about the, these privileges that the Jews actually truly had uh, and, and that they enjoyed. So let's just quickly run through the eight privileges that we see in these verses because they had the law. The first one is this, they called themselves Jew. That's a really big deal. That, that distinguishes this group of people from all the rest of the people in the world as God's chosen people. A Jew comes from the word Judah and it's used of Israelites generally and specifically it's used of people who were from Judah after the return of the exile from Babylon. Uh, but they were Jews and they were God's chosen people. And because they were God's chosen people, that led to all the rest of the privileges that we will talk about uh, now. So the second privilege then was because they're Jews, they relied on the law. Not in the sense that they always obeyed it, but in the sense that they depended on it because uh, if they had the law, which they did, that put them in special position as opposed to the Gentiles. So they relied on the law in, sense of their, in the sense of relying on it for their own salvation, relying on their privilege rather than their obedience to it. The third thing is that the Jews boasted in God. Now, that's a really good thing because what Paul is saying is that these Jews are, are distinguished from all the Gentiles who relied on all kinds of thousands of different gods of stone and wood. Uh, the Jews were monotheists. They were worshiping the one true God. And that's a big advantage that they had over the Gentiles. And that also separated them from the Gentiles. A fourth privilege now in verse 18. They knew his will. Now, this is more than just God's general revelation that they could know in nature. It's more than what they would know uh, from uh, listening to their own consciences. They had God's specific revelation in the law. And so they would know his characteristics and his character and his desires and his plans way more than the Gentiles possibly could because they had his written word, the breath of God. A fifth privilege is that they approved what is superior. Verse 18. So it's not just the law. When we think of the law, sometimes we think that means just the Ten Commandments. Paul uses it that way sometimes, but often it's much more broad than that. Uh, the, the law here means that they had the Ten Commandments plus the dietary laws, plus rules about how to live a holy life and, and many other rules for living a life that God would approve. And these Jews, because they had this information, they could live a life that was superior to anything uh, that the Gentiles would know about. And that also separated them from the Gentiles. And they would approve what was excellent as opposed to the Gentile heathen lifestyle. A sixth privilege is that they were instructed by the law. So like Paul, many Jewish boys were raised in schools where they were taught by esteemed teachers. Paul was taught by a man named Gamaliel, who was a very esteemed teacher of the law. But other Jewish boys were taught the same, and the parents taught uh, their kids the law, just like instructed in the Old Testament. And so learning the law set them apart from the Gentiles who didn't have the law, and that made them special. And because of these first six privileges, they, you can see how they would be specially equipped now because these first six privileges have to do with their own knowledge and their own relationship to God. 
vertically with God. But now these next privileges, these next two, have to do with how now they're going to take these privileges and use them to reach the world around them. So a seventh privilege, because of the first six, is now they are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark. They're instructors of the foolish and they're instructors of children. And all these things are true. These are part of God's plan. God came to Israel first, and then he was going to bless the nations through Israel. And Israel was supposed to be a light to the people who were blind. And that's why God, when he came to Abraham, said, I'm going to bless you, and then I'm going to bless the nations through you. So it was always God's plan that it would come to Israel and then spread to the nations through Israel. And so that was another privilege. And then finally, the last one, they have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So they had more of God's revelation than anyone. The embodiment of God's law and truth is in the law. They knew him because they knew the law. And so they should have led a life that reflects the God that they knew so well. So this is quite an impressive list of privileges. And, and uh, uh, I, I think if you sat there in your chair and you were a Jew and you were reading this and you were listening or listening or reading to this and, and you're listening to Paul tick off these lists of advantages, you could see yourself get kind of puffed up, right? Kind of conceited, like, yeah, that's me. Uh, yeah, that, that one too. Yep, yep, yep. Checking them off the list. Just full of pride, full of conceit, uh, thinking, uh, yeah, how, how great we are, this Jewish people uh, that God has chosen. And so uh, how shocking do you think it was when they read the next verses as Paul brings the hammer down on even them, even the Jews who have the law, who have circumcision, they too are guilty of sin, as Paul will convict them now uh, in these next verses. He's really set them up like bowling pins, and now he's just going to knock them all down in verses uh, 21 to 24. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, that would have hit them like a brick to the face. That's what that would have felt like after all of these privileges had been set forth. And after several verses talking about uh, the pious Gent uh, Jews last week who uh, depended on self-righteousness and the immoral idolaters the week before, uh, the Jews were just thinking they were, were, were all about it. And then Paul just gives them uh, a real beating here too and says they're no better off uh, the Jews' responsibility was greater because of their increased privilege of having the law. The law was not a basis of their salvation. It was actually a basis for their condemnation because they didn't obey the law even though they had it. And so Paul cited several examples in these verses. And the charges against them, really, if you could just categorize them under one heading, it's all about hypocrisy, right? They are saying one thing and they're doing another. Uh, and that's the height of hypocrisy. Uh, so they didn't obey their own teaching. They stole, they committed adultery, which were two things specifically mentioned in the Ten Commandments uh, and prohibited by them. 
Uh, they robbed temples. Isn't that interesting? Uh, some commentators think that they uh, were skimming from the temple treasury or that they were perhaps not uh, giving the full tithe to the temple treasury. But most commentators think it's actually even worse than that uh, because there's evidence from the first century uh, that Jews would sneak into the pagan temples and they would rob the golden idols uh, from the pagan temples and they would either resell them for cash or melt them down uh, and use them for their own use. So uh, pretty convicting stuff that Paul uh, talks about here. And so the, the summary statement in verse 24 is very convicting. They bragged about being Jews and having the law and all the privileges that go along with that, but then they didn't obey them. And the result, of course, is that they dishonor God. They blaspheme God. And God's name is disgraced or blasphemed even among the Gentiles. So if the Jews who have the law and they have all these privileges that God, uh, that Paul listed here in these verses, if they have all these things, they're supposed to be the leaders and yet their lifestyle doesn't match what they know. Uh, the Jews' example to the Gentiles was to live ungodly lives. And so why would the Gentiles follow after the Jews if they have the law and circumcision and they don't live any better than we do? Why should we live that way? And so they encouraged this immoral lifestyle. Uh, and so their walk didn't match their talk. They were hypocrites. Now, I don't think there's anything more damaging to our witness than when our walk doesn't match our talk. When we say one thing and when we do another, especially when we claim to be Christians and then openly rebel against God and his commandments and what he wants us to do. And it's especially true when, when uh, the person who does this is a public figure, uh, maybe a prominent pastor who's caught in uh, some uh, affair with another woman or a, sex, a sexual abuse or harassment kind of scandal or embezzling money or, or anything that we can read about in the papers. Uh, the scandal is so great because the platform is so visible, right? And of course, the press loves a good story like that. So it becomes so visible, but the, the people hold themselves out as godly men, and then they do the exact opposite of the thing that they uh, are preaching against, and they show that they can't even control their own wicked desires. And so they disgrace God's name. And it's not just the pastor who suffers harm. It's his wife, it's his family, it's his congregation. It's embarrassing, it's humiliating for them. And then it's the people who buy their books or listen to them on the radio or watch them on TV. Uh, and it's the people who may have come to faith through their ministry, but now they see him as some kind of hypocrite. So Christianity suffers immeasurable harm. And that's why it's so important for us uh, that we are always examining our lives to be sure that there is no hypocrisy uh, in our lives that we can be accused of because we never want to blaspheme or disgrace God. And we may not have huge circles of influence, but we do have people who are watching us because we call ourselves Christians, whether it's our families, friends, co-workers, neighbors, uh, your friends on Facebook, they are all watching us. So if we who have the word of God and profess that people should obey it and we don't, that really damages Christianity and it disgraces God. So the Jews, they relied on what they had. They had the law and yet they didn't obey it. And they wanted to avoid God's judgment, because, but they couldn't because they were disobedient to the law. In this next section, we'll also see that Jews relied not only on what they had, but what they did. They relied on circumcision to avoid God's wrath. 
And Paul showed here that just like uh, the law is no benefit to them if they don't follow it, neither is circumcision a benefit to them if they don't follow the law. So the Jews had a lot of confidence in the law, and they also had a lot of confidence in circumcision. So before we dig into our passage here, I want to do a little bit of background on circumcision so we just understand how important this was to them. Because God gave this to them as the sign of the covenant between God and his people. And we can read about this in Genesis chapter 17. Uh, This is God speaking to Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God makes all these incredible promises to Abraham and then seals it with the covenant of circumcision that he made with Israel. And God meant for those who received it, that meant that they were entering into the covenant community uh, that God had made with Abraham. And Jews faithfully practiced circumcision for 2,000 years between when it was given to Abraham and and when Paul was writing here uh, in the book of Romans. And during that time, as you know, Judaism had been severely threatened many times. We can read about it all throughout the Old Testament In particular, uh, we know about the Assyrian uh, captivity and exile of uh, the northern kingdoms, and we know about the Babylonian exile and captivity of the southern kingdoms. But the most serious threat to Judaism may have actually occurred between the two testaments, what we call the intertestamental period. The Old Testament ended in about 400 BC, and then the New Testament, of course, began in the first century. But uh, in the 170s and the 160s BC, there was this ruler of the Greek people uh, known as Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he was a conqueror, and he was ruling over Israel at that point in time. And he hated Israel, and he wanted to eradicate Judaism. And so he came to Jerusalem, and he even sacrificed a pig, the most unclean animal, on their sacred altar. And that was the most offensive thing that he could possibly think of to do, and that's what he did. And then he tried to make all the Jews adopt uh, uh, Greek customs and lifestyle, which of course would offend their Jewish sensibilities in every possible way. And then another thing that he did was he made circumcision a capital offense. So if you were circumcised, you were going to be killed. And so that is a serious attempt to eradicate Judaism. And you can read about all these things in the book of 1 Maccabees. Well, some Jews, they abandoned the law, they abandoned circumcision in order to save their lives. But the really strict, uh, devout Jews, uh, they rose up in revolt and they killed the Jews who were conforming to Antiochus Epiphanes' uh, edicts. And then they revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes and they were successful enough to drive the Greeks out of Israel and they were able to restore their customs, including circumcision. Uh, And so 
These things happened only 200 years before Paul was writing. And soon after that Maccabean revolt, uh, uh, the Pharisees arose. And they were, of course, very strict in following the law. And so you can see that because of the Maccabean revolt and the, re and the resulting success they had, circumcision became even more important to them uh, than perhaps it had been. Because people uh, always appreciate what they have more uh, after people try to take it away from them, right? So if, uh, if somebody tries to take something from you, you'll appreciate the thing that you have even more. Uh, do you remember the pride that you felt in America uh, after those terrorists knocked down the Twin Towers and uh, these firemen planted that flag and raised it back up again and said, we will not be defeated by terrorism. We will not be discouraged. I know I did. I felt incredible pride about our national anthem and about our flag because it had been seriously threatened. Sometimes we take it for granted until it's under threat. And that's the same thing that it would have been for Jews with their circumcision. They became even more proud of their heritage and relied more on their rituals in the first century than perhaps they did in the centuries before. And so it was an immense source of pride for the Jews. And that's one of the reasons why it was unthinkable uh, in the first century when Paul was uh, conflicting with the, and, and clashing with the Judaizers. The Judaizers said, how can the Gentiles be people of God without circumcision? Uh, that's why, because circumcision was so important to these Jews. So with that in mind, uh, let's listen to Paul's stinging words to the Jews about their circumcision and their disobedience. Verses 25 to 27. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker." When you read those words, I mean, Paul was no wimp. He was just bringing it against these Jews who were relying so heavily on the law and circumcision, and Paul was calling them out. So just like having the law had no value without obedience, circumcision in the same way has no value without the law. And this charge would have been shocking to the Jews. Even the best Jews sinned occasionally, and yet they were going to suffer the same fate as these heathen Gentiles who had no law and no thought of being obedient to God. Paul was saying they were all under the same condemnation of God. They were no better off than the Gentiles. And so then the other side of the coin is true too. If the circumcised can become uncircumcised by their disobedience, well, the uncircumcised can be deemed circumcised by their obedience. And so it's not that works save, but works show the condition of a saved heart and a transformed heart. And so Paul uh, is showing them uh, that it's not circumcision, it's obedience. And so uh, these Gentiles uh, or these, these Jews were no better off than a disobedient Gentile. And then in verse 27, he goes even further and he says, not only are they on the same level as you, but in fact, if they're obedient, they will judge you who are disobedient. And that would have been absolutely shocking to these Jews because they always stood in uh, arrogant judgment of these Gentiles who they thought were beneath them. And now Paul is saying these Gentiles who are obedient are actually going to stand in judgment of you. And that would have been a shocking statement to them, scandalous to Jewish ears. So now Paul goes on to tell them that the only thing that matters is circumcision of the heart. 
verses 28 and 29. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So Paul says that circumcision uh, accounts for nothing unless it's accompanied by circumcision of the heart. Uh, All Jews were physically circumcised, but not all Jews had had this circumcision of the heart. And those who were circumcised only physically, uh, they would try to earn their salvation by the strict adherence to the law. But of course, nobody can do that. And so they were all unsuccessful. That's the written code that Paul mentioned here in verse 29. So what we're doing then, or what they were doing, is they're trying to uh, have salvation by religion and religious performance and rituals, Uh, but they they were not saved because their sinful hearts still beat inside those physically circumcised bodies. And circumcision does nothing to cure the problem of the sinful heart that still exists inside of them in open rebellion against God. And so what the Jew needed uh, was to have their hearts changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Circumcision of the heart is what Paul called it. And that's not religion, that's grace. That's not a work that we can do. That's a work that only God can do. And so this idea of circumcision of the heart was not original to Paul. This this phrase is found in the Old Testament. So it should not have been shocking to Jewish ears to hear this phrase. Uh, If we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Deuteronomy 30, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. And one more, Jeremiah 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. So circumcision of the heart, what is it? We know that physical circumcision is is actual physical surgery, hopefully performed by a doctor with a knife on our physical bodies. Uh, But heart circumcision is spiritual. It is a spiritual surgery that only the Holy Spirit can perform. And so people cannot achieve it through adherence to any kind of written code or, or anything else that we do. It's God's act of saving grace for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ for salvation. And Jews need it, Gentiles need it, everybody who would be saved needs this circumcision of the heart. And so if these Jews thought they could escape God's judgment by adhering to the law or the covenant of circumcision, Paul showed that they were sorely mistaken. The law and circumcision do not save, they only convict And verse 29 says that these people may appear to be outwardly pious to others and they may gain the praise of men by what they appear to be, but they will not receive the praise of God for their outward attempts uh, to try and please the Lord. It's only by this circumcision of the heart that they can be saved. And so performance uh, is only of any value if it follows after this spiritual heart surgery that, that God does, if it follows the right heart attitude. 
And this is where we can begin to apply this passage to our lives because uh, the law and the New Testament are for Jews. That, that, uh, the, I'm sorry, the law and circumcision are not for Christians. They were for the Jews in the Old Testament. Paul will explain later that Jews are not under the law, but under grace. So we are under grace. We're not under that law anymore. So why is it that Christians who are not under the law, but are under grace, still feel like we need to earn and do in order to, to uh, attain this salvation or keep this salvation? Well, I think it's partly cultural. Uh, in America, we are taught all about how fiercely independent we're supposed to be, right? We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we do it ourselves, and, and uh, we know that there's no such thing as a free lunch and we're told to work really hard, uh, go to college, go to graduate school, get a job, work, work, work. It's all about work in our country. We work to achieve. And so it's no wonder that we think we need to work because nobody else gives us anything in the world, why would God give us anything? Well, that's because God is nothing like us, is he? God gives just because he loves. And he loves us so much that he gave his son to die on a cross so that we would not have to work to achieve our salvation. He gives us grace because he loves us. And so grace is the free gift that we receive when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And even though the gift is free, we as Christians sometimes still try to earn the gift in many ways, which is counter to what God says. So as we conclude, I just want us to think of a few ways that perhaps uh, we may try to keep or earn our own salvation. And the easiest one uh, to use, because it's so similar and parallel to circumcision, is the Christian rite of baptism, right? Uh, both baptism and circumcision are external signs. And just like the Jews may have thought that their circumcision would save them, uh, a lot of people think that their baptism saves them. Uh, but baptism does not save. Baptism is only the outward confession of faith that we already have in Jesus Christ. And we get baptized because he commanded it and because we want to uh, identify with him and profess publicly that we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. By going under the water, we identify with his uh, death and his burial. By coming up out of the water, we identify with his resurrection to a new life. But some people have been baptized and have never ever received Jesus Christ as their savior and received the gift of the Holy Spirit along with it. And so God's wrath is still on them. And it's sad to think that people rely on their baptism uh, to believe that it's some kind of insurance policy against God's judgment that is coming for them. But baptism without faith is just empty religion and ritual and just like circumcision cannot save Baptism can't save either. It's something that we do after we're saved to show the world that we are saved. Another thing that we might rely on is church attendance and church membership. Uh, someone once said that sitting uh, in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. And that's certainly true, right? Uh, we are not Christians because we sit in a church. We can faithfully attend church and we can check that box off our list of obligations uh, every week. We can do that faithfully for years and years, but none of that makes us Christian. 
A Christian is somebody who believes that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead. And so go to go, going to a church is a great thing, but only if accompanied with the right heart attitude. It's possible to never miss a Sunday at church, but if our hearts aren't right, we'll still only be practicing empty religion and ritual rather than having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And then finally, just other random miscellaneous works that we do. Uh, we try to earn our salvation or keep it by doing. We give money to charities. We volunteer at homeless shelters or battered women's shelters or whatever else we may do. We participate in every single church function that there is. Maybe we even organize them ourselves. Uh, these are all good things if we're doing them because of our salvation but not if we're doing them to try to earn our salvation or keep our salvation. We do them out of an attitude of gratitude for what God has done in our lives and our desire to please Jesus Christ and know him better. And that's evidence of relationship with him. And without relationship, all we have is empty religion and ritual. Now, if you grew up in a legalistic church, a grace It may have taken you a long time to understand grace. It's a difficult concept when works have been beaten into you. Legalistic churches are long on works and performance and judgment and very short on grace. But the amazing thing about grace, the thing that makes it so amazing is that it doesn't depend on us at all. It depends on God. He is the one who gives it. And it's God's gift to us that we could never earn on our own. And he gives it to us forever when we trust in Jesus Christ as our savior. And so God doesn't want empty religion. All he wants from us is our hearts. And I pray that we are prepared to give them to him and that we already have. Let's pray. Lord God, your grace is absolutely incredible. And when we think, Lord, of all the ways that we might try to earn your love and earn your grace, Lord, uh, we cannot do anything. It's like spitting in the ocean to think that we could uh, possibly do anything to merit your grace, Lord. And so we are so thankful because the only way we can get it is through belief in the death and resurrection of your son. Lord, uh, we trust that everyone in this room has received Jesus Christ as their savior. If there's anyone within the sound of my voice, Lord, who has not, I pray that they would be convicted of sin, just like Paul convicted the Jews of sin, and see their need for a savior, Lord, and trust that Jesus Christ is that answer. Because he died and rose again, we have eternal life for those of us who believe. Lord, we thank you for the incredible gospel message, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.